ABA Learning Lab. There was no applied behavior analysis in 1959. If there had not been that publication, it's not clear to me that there would be applied behavior analysis even today. Behavior analysis is a broad field uh, and really focused on the science of behavior. So where did applied behavior analysis come from? Obviously, it's the extension of the basic work uh, or the basic science. But really, where did it start? When did it start? And that was our question. So we decided that we would go and talk to some experts who could give us a little history. But first, we had to go back in time to 1959. Dwight D. Eisenhower had just granted statehood to Alaska and Hawaii. Fidel Castro had just become uh, an antagonist and come to power against the United States. And the Barbie doll premiered for the first time. Gas was 25 cents per gallon, and the cost of a movie ticket was $1. Americans are efficient, big, strong. Yet mental illness will strike one in every... Psychiatry was really gaining in popularity at this time. And the idea of a modern psychiatry where patients could go to a psychiatric hospital and receive treatment for their ailments was really revolutionizing the way that uh, medicine was applied for these individuals. Now, in today's standards, it looks pretty crazy, but you could be sent to a psychiatric hospital for depression or anxiety or for more severe behavior. And oftentimes, their treatment modalities included talk therapy, of course, but hydrotherapy, electroshock therapy, or sometimes even lobotomy. Also during this time, it was the first applied study of behavior analysis. Jack Michael and Ted Ion wrote and published The Psychiatric Nurse as Behavioral Engineer. We decided we'd visit a friend and mentor, Dr. Richard Malott. For those that don't know, Dr. Malott has been teaching for over 40 years at Western Michigan University. He wrote Principles of Behavior and helped found what would become the Association for Behavior Analysis International. He's also the oldest behavior analyst that we know. I was a graduate student second year master's student at Columbia University when the big event happened. The big event Dr. Malott's talking about, it was the first publication of an applied behavior analysis research study. Ted Ion and Jack Michael published The Psychiatric Nurse as a Behavioral Engineer, which is the article that started applied behavior analysis. 
there was no applied behavior analysis in 1959. Hold on a minute. Where is behavior analysis in all of this? Well, we're going to find out, but it definitely was not in psychiatric care. Behavior analysis existed with pigeons and mice in 1959. I think 1959 was pretty much still pre-psychopharmacology, uh, I think. Uh, and if that's the case, then it was mainly verbal psychotherapy, and I would probably say psychoanalytic and probably Freudian. Uh, but don't take that too seriously. Wikipedia, if you really want to know. Jack Michael was down at, maybe it was Arizona State, uh, outside of Phoenix. And uh, uh, they had a few behavior analysts down there on the faculty and a kind of a behavior analysis program. Ted Ion was a clinical student who kind of drifted over into Jap Jack's camp as a clinical psychology student, Ted was going to do his clinical internship at, uh, where was it, Saskatchewan uh, in Canada. Ted said, I'm going to be going up there doing my internship. What could I do for a dissertation? And Jack Michael said, I thought kind of one of the dumbest things ever. He said, well, why don't you work with some of those crazy people and if they're doing the right thing, make sure they get a reinforcer and make sure they don't get a reinforcer when they're doing the wrong thing. And I thought that was like, that's really simplistic. So that's what Ted did. And I, I think he pretty much on his own and that, hey, they were right. That's what you're supposed to do. And that uh, was incredibly uh, optimistic, I would say, on their part. So Ted basically had to get his internship done. And he did it in such a way that was pretty novel at that time. He went to a psychiatric hospital where people had been receiving treatment but not seeing any gains. And he decided to use some principles of behavior to see if he could make an impact in their lives. So we're dealing with older adult psychiatric patients. Yeah, exactly. So this was at Saskatchewan Hospital in Ontario. And from what I gathered, this was the kind of last stop for a lot of people, the worst of the worst. Um, although oftentimes in a psychiatric facility, you could be sent there for depression, uh, for anxiety, for kind of things we can treat medically now with, with medication. Uh, but obviously there's some more severe cases there too. What, uh, what were the participants like? So the article actually reviews uh, quite a few of these different cases and patients in there and the behavioral procedures that they use to treat them. Uh, because there's just so many patients that they talk about, we're only going to select a few that we actually discuss here. Uh, Lucille had been a patient there for quite a while, and she had basically this habit of going to the nurse's station and interrupting them uh, up to 16 times per day. And if you're a nurse in a busy psychiatric hospital, uh, that can be pretty disruptive to your job and your duties. Uh, they pretty much figured uh, they were stuck with this behavior. She was considered a mental defect, and there was nothing they could do. Uh, they'd tell her she's not allowed in there, and they'd kick her out every time she'd come in. But 
she'd always return and always disrupt them. Needless to say, the nurses weren't too happy with her. It's too difficult to tell her anything because she can't understand. She's too dumb. The psychiatric nurses there went through a three-year training program, which is pretty intense. They had a lot of autonomy from day to day, uh, and they were allowed to either continue or discontinue treatment as they saw fit. They also administered all sorts of reinforcement, so incoming and outgoing mail, visitor traffic, ground passes, uh, paroles being discharged, and access to group therapy. Because they were going to be using some new behavioral procedures that they just weren't familiar with, Ted Ion met with everyone and kind of went through some basics. Reinforcement is something you do for or with a patient. For example, offering candy or a cigarette. You heard that right. Cigarettes were basically used like candy back in the day. Any way you convey attention to the patient is reinforcing. Patients may be reinforced if you answer their questions, talk to them, or let them know by your reaction that you are aware of their presence. The common sense expression, pay no attention, is perhaps the closest to what must be done to discourage the patient's behavior. When we say, do not reinforce a behavior, we are actually saying, ignore the behavior and act deaf and blind whenever it occurs. When analyzing Lucille's behavior, it became pretty clear that it was maintained by attention. And to treat a behavior maintained by attention meant that they were going to use extinction, or they are going to stop reinforcing that behavior with their attention. During this program, the patient must not be given reinforcement for entering the nurse's office. Tally every time she enters the office. So what happened? Her interruptions at the nurse's office went from a baseline of 16 to pretty much near zero. Unfortunately, some old habits or beliefs kind of die hard. We've changed her behavior, so what? She's still psychotic. You also had Helen. Helen had psychotic talk that had persisted for over three years. It had gotten so bad that she was frequently being beaten up by other patients. Her conversations usually centered around her illegitimate child and the men that she claimed were constantly pursuing her. Men just won't leave me alone. The superintendent is still trying to get into my bed every single night. I always have to fight him off, and I can't afford another illegitimate child. I already have one illegitimate baby. I don't need another one. While recording this, we did have the concern, well, what if Helen was telling the truth? From what we could gather, Helen didn't have any children, and it was just psychotic talk. The medical staff there believed that Helen would engage in this psychotic talk as a way to push her trouble onto somebody else, and that by doing so, she would make herself feel free. The nurses sometimes would listen to her in an attempt to get to the root of her problem, while other nurses would listen to her but would simply nod their head and remark, yes, I understand. So some delusional speech patterns, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And when they did their functional assessment, uh, they saw problem behavior that was being maintained by attention. During this program, the patient must not be given reinforcement for a psychotic talk. Check the patient every 30 minutes and A, tally for psychotic talk, and B, reinforce and tally sensible talk. If another patient fights fight? with her, avoid you making an fight? issue of it. You Simply stop the fight? other patient from hurting her, but do so with a matter-of-fact attitude. 
Now, the intervention sounds relatively simple. Was it effective? Well, yes and no. During baseline, she had psychotic talk 91% of intervals, and it did decrease to 25%. But it mysteriously increased during week 9. So what was unique about week 9? Was anything new introduced in the environment that might have accounted for that change? Yeah, so she had been visiting a social worker who, unbeknownst to the nurses, had been reinforcing that psychotic talk. Well, if you're not going to listen to me, I'll just have to go see my social worker again. Because she told me she would listen to my past and that she's going to help me. Why is everyone ignoring me? All of these men keep pursuing me and nobody's doing anything about it. Men just won't leave me alone. If you work in the field of applied behavior analysis, you have undoubtedly run into this before. The social worker, well-intentioned as she is, trying to help Helen, she was reinforcing psychotic talk. And if it's maintained by attention, we're going to see more of it in the future. We also looked at Mary's case. So Mary was refusing to eat food. Why uh, was that? Well, she was concerned um, perhaps about her weight. She was very particular about her dresses and uh, how she looked. The, uh, the issue was uh, she was going to die. So she couldn't eat food, uh, or at least wouldn't eat food, and there was some serious concern whether or not she was going to make it. So it kind of looked like this. During mealtimes and during an eight-day baseline, Mary had only eaten five meals on her own. The rest uh, had to be spoon-fed. In fact, she refused to eat seven of the meals and had to be spoon-fed for 12 of them. She only weighed 99 pounds. Because Mary was so particular about her dress uh, and her neatness, they used this to their advantage. So during mealtimes, the nurses would give Mary one or two good bites, then, quote, accidentally drop some uh, onto her dress. And this would continue during the meal unless Mary independently reached for the spoon. And what we saw was she began to self-feed in a matter of weeks. In fact, by the 12th week, she was eating all three meals by herself. She did relapse during the fifth week, and it ends up someone told her that the spills weren't accidental. And obviously, that'd be pretty upsetting. This lasted for five days before it returned to her eating independently. All in all, she gained 21 pounds and was successfully discharged from the hospital. This procedure might sound a little bit controversial, uh, in modern behavior analysis, but I think it's really important to point out that Mary might have died. She was not eating food, and she was in a really restrictive environment. She was in a psychiatric hospital. By using this restrictive procedure or punishment procedure, we were able to change her behavior in such a way that she could eat by herself, gain 21 pounds, and was discharged from the hospital uh, in a matter of weeks. If we didn't use punishment here, Mary probably would have still been in the hospital for quite a while. Having personally worked in some pretty restrictive environments, hospitals and residential facilities, it's not uncommon that we would have used something like this to treat pretty severe behavior. But I still wanted to get Dr. Malott's opinion on this. That's a typical Ted Ayo. Uh, he, <laughs> I love this, he loves being deceptive. 
So it's, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to spill this on you. Uh, or in the case of the little kid who keeps getting in bed with mommy and daddy, and they don't say, hey, you can't do this. They just say, oh, sure, come on, get in bed. And then they gradually scoot him out. I'm sorry, we just don't have, it's still crowded. I'm sorry you're having to fall on the floor. Uh, so he really loves that. Uh, and uh, and it works. Because of mental illness, the brain you also had several, quote, mentally defective patients uh, in the same ward. You had Harry, Joe, Tom, and Mac. And they would collect papers, rubbish, magazines, and they'd carry them around with them. And they'd hide it in their clothes, next to their person, uh, or in their room. The most serious offender was Harry, uh, whose hoarding resulted in skin rashes. So I'm just curious, James, the term mentally defective, is this what society had coined them, or is this actually used by people in the hospital itself? I think that's an actual medical diagnosis circa 1959. Yeah, what's interesting is the nurses uh, had to, quote, de-junk him uh, several times per day because he would carry so much trash with them, uh, and he ended up going to bed with it. So when they did their analysis, what they found was these patients just wanted stuff. So when they provided non-contingent access to uh, magazines and books, things like that, they stopped disappearing and the patients stopped hoarding them. So they basically enriched the environment. What's pretty impactful from this article is you had uh, so many patients that were deemed incurable and untreatable. And Ted Ion and Jack Michael went in there and they changed behavior in a significant way. But we found out that this article was almost never published. They had a hell of a time getting it accepted. Uh, it wasn't experimental enough. Uh, they, you know, they'd work with this psychotic adult and do one thing, and they work with another psychotic adult and do another thing. And while we are uh, in, in, in experimental analysis, we're not large group statistics people. We like to have like three or four uh, rats or pigeons doing the same thing. Uh, and uh, so it didn't have the experimental rigor that the experimental analysts wanted. And they, they barely got it published. If there had not been that publication, it's not clear to me that there would be applied behavior analysis even today. Uh, maybe, but it wasn't heading that way. I don't think much was happening, and no one was thinking that way, like crazy Ted Ion was thinking. He went there as a clinical psychologist, a uh, psychology doctoral student, doing his doctoral internship, clinical internship. Um, he, in a sense, wasn't going there as a behavior analyst, but he had been bitten by the, the fantasy and, you know, with Jack Michael's encouragement, then he did, you know, I think essentially the world's first be applied behavior analysis. They were demonstrating that the principles of behavior apply to human beings uh, just like they do to every other organism.
those pioneering days in behavior analysis were all about proving that these principles worked outside of a Skinner box, outside of just pigeons and rats. We've obviously come a long way since this initial article, working with kids and families with autism, with schools, with healthcare systems, and with organizations. And to think it almost never happened. Ted finishes the article by saying, on the basis of this work, further research along the same lines is now underway. The present results are presented in this preliminary form in the hopes that they will provide encouragement to those who are in a position to conduct similar research. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of ABA Learning Lab. This episode was produced by James Macon, Brian Kaminsky, and Lauren DeClaire. Special thanks to Gabby Gruder and Kevin Gregory, and Dr. Richard Mallott. Check out abalearninglab.com for more episodes.